20 minutes after the hour of uh, 4 o'clock, let me switch gears now and go over to Miss uh, Vashani, is it? Ragubir. Good afternoon, ma'am. Hello? Me? Yes, I'm hearing you now. Good afternoon. Hello, are you hearing me? Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing you. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um... First and foremost, I want to remind persons of who you are. And uh, I did mention it in the last hour. A multimedia journalist and graduate of the University of the West Indies. Am I correct so far? Ms. Ragubier, are you there? Yeah, you're going correct so far. All right. And um, yes, I mean, I'm here. with work recognized by the Guyana Press Association, uh, the Pan-American uh, Health Organization, the World Health Organization, and the Caribbean Broadcasting Union. You've also been part of the fellowships with the Thomson Reuters Foundation and Climate Tracker. I'm, in, I'm, I'm interested to find out what is this Climate Tracker about. Welcome to Freedom on a 6.5 FM. Welcome to Trinidad. Talk to me a little bit about this Climate Tracker. What is that? Sure thing. Um, Climate, or Climate Tracker is an international organization that supports primarily young journalists all around the world, primarily Global South communities, mm -hmm. uh, Global South countries, helping us to report better on an issue that's disproportionately affecting the people where we, the people in countries where we live, climate change, people affected by the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. So uh, over the past two years, three years now maybe, Mm. I've been fortunate to benefit from a lot of support from Climate Tracker. They've helped me with improving my reporting on the energy transition, which, of course, you know, is something very topical here in Ghana. And they've helped me to improve a lot of my reporting generally on the climate crisis, something topical again in Ghana and Trinidad across the Caribbean because we're all very small, vulnerable countries. You know... We all talk about climate change. Yesterday we had conversations on it and how it affects Trinidad and Tobago, how it affects, you know, the world. And a lot of persons, I mentioned this when I, when I spoke with one of our journalists here in Trinidad, that we take this for granted, you know. Um, let's talk about the Guyana is currently on a push and a drive to change um, for climate change. And they, they had that talk when they had COP28. Let's talk a little, a little bit about Guyana's position when it comes to climate change. Yeah, sure. So Ghana has been saying a lot about climate change for a long time now, um, certainly as long as I've been reporting, but I think there's a lot of attention now on Ghana because of our ventures in oil and gas, which, which is expected and understandable. But I think Ghana's main focus when it comes to climate change uh, would be on forest protection. At least that's what we've talked about a lot at COP28, which was just recently in Dubai. We have forests that you, you hear people compare the our forests, they're the size of England and Scotland combined, and people mm -hmm. make that comparison a lot. Mm -hmm. And they trap a huge amount of carbon dioxide, a harmful greenhouse gas, which contributes to global warming for those for those persons who might know. So what Ghana has been arguing for since about 2008, 2009, is that forested countries like us should be getting compensation, so to speak, to help mm -hmm. keep those forests intact because those forests could be cut down for agricultural purposes for mining for for development quote unquote development generally mm -hmm. so the argument has been that Guyana should Ghana and other forested countries should get some sort of compensation to keep those forests standing 
a lot of what Guyana spoke about at COP28 and a lot of what Guyana has been talking about because forest protection is now an integral part of Guyana's national development plan, the Low Carbon Development Strategy, is how that would actually unfold. How, 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 was, how does that work for Guyana? So in my reporting, I've been covering various perspectives on how Ghana is making that work, but also how that's unfolding in the international space. And coming out of COP28, what we saw was that the Article 6 talks and Article 6 talks relate directly to forest protection, forest conservation because of the carbon markets. They didn't exactly progress. So that has been a huge disappointment for the government here, but it hasn't necessarily been a disappointment for everyone globally because there are very many people who believe that you know these markets shouldn't necessarily advance until we have a basic or common set of standards that really regulate them well enough so that they actually work meaningfully. But then you said something just now about forested countries and climate change, all right? Um, for, for one person was uh, messaging me and said that climate change only affects the cooler countries. And it does so because of the melting of the snow with the global warming and all these things. Let us first go back a little bit and identify what is actually climate change for the benefit of our listeners here on Freedom that may not be cog um, cognizant of what is happening. Can you identify what is climate change? Sure. sure. So I think it's a very fair question, fair point coming out. Climate change isn't something that a lot of us in the Caribbean have been talking about for a very long time. I think with the likes of the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley, being such a strong voice in climate change, the conversation is now picking up a little bit more now. So it's a very, I think it's a very fair thing to talk about. And, and I don't think in any way that this is coming from a place of ignorance or anything of the sort. But climate change is really linked to all of those human-induced things that we do to help let's say make the planet hotter, but, but also worsen other natural disasters. But for illustrative purposes, for those of us in the Caribbean, Guyana, Trinidad, other countries, the more apparent ways that we see climate change unfolding, so to speak, would be the droughts we're facing. They're getting worse every single time. Would be the sea level rise, which affects coastal communities, which is affecting Guyana's coastline, where a majority of the population lives and works, it is affecting Trinidad, which is an island surrounded by water. So it's not just that the entire earth is getting warmer, but colder countries are going to be affected more because their ice is going to melt and go away. Those climate change in itself, which is caused, which is induced by human activity, the things that we do, we burn fossil fuels and those sort of things. It's, it's, it has a ripple effect on all of these disasters as we know it. We've seen a lot of forest fires in some countries last year really horrible things uh, we hear about once in a century type events so to speak those are all things caused by the climate crisis and it's not just again in in quote unquote cold countries so i think um a way i've been trying to connect with people and help them understand what climate change is isn't to define it for them but it's more of to sort of tell them how it unfolds uh, and I guess that's a way of getting people to read more of my stories. So fast in Ghana, rising sea levels, flooding, coastal erosion, uh, worsening droughts, which obviously affects farming. 
and I imagine many of those things, well, not I imagine, many of those things are the same in Trinidad and Tobago. Well said, eh? and you're very correct. We are experiencing those type of things um, happening on this side of the of the hemisphere. Uh, persons can take their minds back to 2023 right here in Trinidad and Tobago, where we would we normally have what is known as two seasons. We have a wet and a dry season. But for some reason, we would have seen an extension to the dry season for 2023. And that is as a result of global um well, global warming, climate change, all these different um, adverse weather uh, effects that is happening. Now, with COP28, how was the Caribbean, along with Guyana, which is part of CARICOM, able to have a voice? And what plans are afoot for, for the Guyanese people in conjunction with CARICOM to really bring about some sort of major... You mentioned uh, awareness. You mentioned Mia Motley. And let's talk about major awareness and what we could do in dealing with climate change because we can't undo it we have to find a way to cope with it and deal with it you know what is guyana doing right now what talks is happening right now as far as you know that would make um the rest of the caricom nationals and nations aware of what is happening and how we can cope with it yeah sure i think i think i i appreciate that question so much i think it's important for people to know that Though I mentioned earlier on that a huge focus for Ghana is compensation for its forests because its forests provide a service to the world. It isn't the only thing Ghana focused on. And these sort of country perspectives, um, we sort of also have a regional perspective when we go into big events like COP, but also like the UN, also like the Summit of the Americas, for example. And at COP, what we see a lot over the last few years is that our region has really come together and push for well first advocated uh, for financial resources because the point is very clear and i don't think anyone is really disputing it that our region is disproportionately affected by the climate crisis just by the fact that we are small and we are particularly vulnerable to all of these disasters that i mentioned before so we've seen over the last couple of years, the last a lot of years, but it has become increasing. The voice has become increasingly strong over the last couple of years. We've been pushing for financial resources to help us, as you said, cope with these challenges that we are faced with, whether we like it or not. And obviously we don't like it. I think financial resources and getting financial resources from the developed global north communities that have historically contributed to the climate crisis and continue to contribute to the climate crisis, um, what we want from them is for them to really recognize their role in, in making this happen, recognize their role in threatening the survival of people in the global south, and getting them to really pay what's owed, I would say. That has been a really strong call from Ghana, from CARICOM, as you mentioned, and we also align those of us in the in the Caribbean, GAN included, we also align with AOSIS, which is the Alliance of Small Island um, States, to really get those countries to recognize that what they're doing and what has been done, what has happened, has threatened our very survival. And also that we need you folks to do a certain set of things so that our people don't cease to exist, so that our countries aren't covered in water in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. So there's always been a huge push for financial resources. 
uh, I, I've personally seen that increase a lot more in the past few years. There's also been a push to recognize that, hey, you folks have been burning fossil fuels for so long and it is absolutely wrecking us. And for the first time at the end of COP28, we saw mention of the word fossil fuels in the in the closing declaration, so to speak, um, though it said a gradual transition away from using fossil fuels and that that has that that presents questions for a lot of people like how might that unfold and there's some people rightly so who don't believe that that is enough uh to to basically save us uh but but you know they say that small progress is better than no progress so i'm rambling a bit so let me just to, to summarize the position that we have aligned ourselves to would be financial resources to get financial resources and that's why we have been strong behind the call for what's called a loss and damage fund which is something that was established and their pledges though not actual money to that fund already and we've also been really strong in our advocacy to get countries particularly global north developed countries to move away from using fossil fuels because fossil fuels harm the environment and worsen the climate crisis you know, <clears throat> you mentioned fossil fuel, and one of the things that came out from COP28, as you probably well aware we are going with this, is Al-Jabbar, Jabbar, serving yeah. as the CEO, but um, 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 yeah. and uh, president of this. But remember, he is in charge of uh, a fossil fuel company, correct? Right. So how was yes, it? Yes. How, how how was it that? How did you all deal with that? Um, your experience in COP twenty eight. I I would imagine you was there. How 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 was it? How were he able to ascend to such a position? One and how was it um, welcomed by the other um, arriving delegates from various countries? Knowing that we're talking about getting rid of fossil fuel. You have you have just mentioned it. We have been burning fossil fuels for so many, for eons and eons that has continued to damage our atmosphere, our ozone layer, and so many other things that this gentleman coming out of COP28, he no doubt would have returned to his position at his company. You know, how was how, how, did, how, how was he accepted and received among the other delegates there at COP28? That, that, approaching that was 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 quite an interesting thing for me personally because on one hand i like everyone else went into cop 28 with a level of skepticism you have an oil boss uh though he does have uh, a renewable energy company but you have essentially an oil boss leading a conference that focuses on solving the climate crisis and then many people see that the oil industry is notorious for contributing these emissions that help to harm the environment. So I approached, personally approached the conference with him at the helm with a bit of skepticism, like very many people, understandably so. But the other interesting part of it for me personally, as a journalist coming out of Ghana, is that leading up to the conference, my president, for example, Dr. Finale, sought to to sort of try to help people see things from a different perspective, I guess, if I can say it that way, that if you want a solution to a problem, you probably shouldn't lock out the people who are contributing to the problem. You probably shouldn't lock out people who are 
stakeholders. So, but then why would his we, point why, was that? Okay, go ahead. Oh, no, I, his point was that oil producing nations, oil companies, etc., they shouldn't be locked out of the conversations. Though locked out is a very, I guess, strong term, but they shouldn't yeah. be kept out of the conversations. Essentially, because you want them to 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 make changes, to bring about change. So you want them to be part of that. But I guess the complexity comes because the Sultan was the head of the conference and yes. that was a very uh, that, that was a very tricky place for him to be I would imagine. but that was something that also rightly so brought a lot of skepticism i mean an oil boss at the head of a climate conference <laughs> that raises that... not one but all two eyebrows yes yes you know um thinking about it every time i think about it and i talk about it i, I have to raise as you mentioned you just mentioned eyebrows and my eyebrows are already up because I, I wonder what the thought process was. I wonder how he felt. I wonder, um, you know, what would make them at least elect him or have him in that position. But I think what you just mentioned right. there in terms of um, that person not being left out, that person not being left out because they are the head of an oil company or fossil fuel ag uh, agent, not being left out of the conversations, is, is it, it almost seems as though it is absolutely necessary and vital to have them there and not look at it from a my perspective or with a stoic approach and i don't know how much of a contribution or what he what he would bring to the table in terms of his opening remarks closing remarks and there and thereabouts how well it would be received how serious one would take it coming from him knowing fully well that once this has concluded he will be returning to the head of his organization. He's not going to say, well, listen, I'm going to go back there and I have to close this down. This is an oil-rich company that is um, exporting oil throughout the world. So he's not, the language was not him leaving or voting against it. It was him making a contribution at the COP28, knowing very well that he's going back there. It's almost as though you tell your child, do as I say, but not as I do. Correct? Yeah. So, I think it, it might have been that way. Um, I think there was some value having him there. But, I mean, from my, this was my maiden cop experience. From my experience, too, it was it was just interesting having him there and seeing how he approached getting people to act, so to speak, or getting people, getting countries to commit in the ways that would bring about meaningful change. Mm-hmm. For example, in the, the closing declaration, having fossil fuels there for the first time, that was, he was beaming with pride. That was perhaps a hallmark of his career uh, as an oil boss, bringing about such a, such a, uh, an inclusion in that declaration. But definitely what I wanted to say is that it was just interesting having him there. I don't exactly know if it might have been better or worse if he was there or he wasn't there but it was just certainly interesting to have him there yeah and mm -hmm. maybe it's a sign of things to come uh maybe it's a sign that more oil companies are paying attention to the climate crisis instead of ignoring it for mm -hmm. years as oil companies have done for a very long time but overall very very interesting yeah, because they're ignoring it. You know, this, them trying to talk something here that's going to close down my business. They're not putting me in a good light. Um, 
if if we push for this agenda, you know what will happen to our organization if we are burning cleaner fuels and moving away from this dinosaur or fossil fuel as it were, this dinosauric approach. You know, so I'm happy that it came out of that. I'm happy that you you were able to give us ball by ball uh, airplay on what you were from your vantage point what you would have seen. Now let's talk a little bit in terms of um, the Vene Guyana and uh, the technical teams that are set to meet with Vene to meet in Venezuela. Can you shed some light yeah. on this? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm sure most of your listeners know about the controversy, at least by now, the controversy, mm. uh, the, the boundary, the border controversy between Guyana and Venezuela. Mm -hmm. uh, in a nutshell, it involves the entire Essequibo region of Guyana, which is about two-thirds of our entire landmass. And that area is covered in all of our forests, um, and it also connects to the prolific oil and gas resources offshore. Um, Venezuela has been claiming this land for years and years and years. Ghana has taken its case to the International Court of Justice after bilateral talks failed. But we saw at the end of last year, things get really, really tense. Mm -hmm. Venezuela pursuing a referendum over this, this Essequibo region. And then the president, Mr. Nicolas Maduro, following that referendum, going ahead and redrawing the map of Venezuela and making certain proclamations over land that is still internationally recognized as Guyana's land and the case is before the ICJ. So coming out of that, we had the historic, I would say, meeting of the two presidents, President Maduro and the president of Ghana, Dr. Fanali, in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And coming out of that engagement between the two leaders, which was, was well supported by lots of CARICOM leaders, um, your Prime Minister, Prime Minister Mia Motley, mm -hmm. Prime Minister Rob Gonzalez, so many persons supported that meeting, all in the interest of maintaining peace and stability within mm -hmm. our hemisphere, within our region. Mm -hmm. Coming out of that meeting between the two presidents was a commitment to meet again in Brazil, which is, I gave all of that to just talk about, you asked about the technical teams, in three months' time. So three months from that December meeting, they agreed that they would meet again in Brazil, they agreed to lots of other things, including that they would not do anything to interfere with the peace and stability in the region, which is very important for both leaders to commit to, especially when things were getting so tense at the end of last year. So ahead of that meeting, three months from the December meeting in Brazil, it's not just going to be you move from one high-level meeting to another. What has to happen before then is that technical teams from Ghana and technical teams from Venezuela with support from regional partners again as as happened at the meeting the first meeting mm -hmm. they need to meet they need to hammer out what the schedule might look like what the meeting might look like what what are these presidents going to talk about what has happened what is happening what all, all that has happened since that meeting going into the next meeting so it's really more of a I guess technical a technical sort of meeting or a technical sort of meetings that need to happen before the two leaders meet again in the interests of maintaining peace and stability in the region, in the interest of not letting tensions bubble over yet again, and in the interest of having a clear schedule or a clear idea of what is going to unfold at that next meeting. The thing about it, uh, we have been noticing this thing for quite some time, and there was a lot of pressure here in Trinidad and Tobago for our leaders to take a position and uh, to take a stance 
And I thought to myself, and I said it on this same station, that the other leaders in CARICOM, I mean, it would have been prudent and wise to not take a position or a side for either Guyana or Venezuela, given that CARICOM, um, I think it was, oh, this is eluding me right now. Is it the United Nations, boy? You know, they have an agreement and, you know, they should go to that governing body and now that the ICJ is involved and all these kind of things. Now, for me, I think these leaders meeting was a very good thing. Uh, I like the idea of them meeting outside of their their homes. All right. So no one leader is coming to anyone, anybody, any other leader's country, but they're meeting on mutual grounds. And uh, I love what you just explained with the technical teams going in to, to have these talks. But I want you to also help me address a very important thing. People may think it was very easy to pick a side with either Venezuela or Guyana. And then war erupts in the, um, over the CARICOM waters. If that was to happen, in your humble and respective opinion, how might that have affected CARICOM nationals? Even though we are not... I just need to say something quickly. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I just need to say something very quickly. I don't want us to to lose sight of the fact that the countries in CARICOM, including Trinidad, the countries in CARICOM, actually do support Guyana because they've all aligned themselves to CARICOM's statements. Right. So even your prime minister, Dr. Yes. Rowley, yes. at his press conference at the airport, he has made it clear that Trinidad supports CARICOM's position, and CARICOM's position is that it supports Guyana in the border controversy with Venezuela. But what is happening now, which is very important for the region, I believe, is that the leaders are all stepping forward to guarantee that nothing interferes with the peace and stability in this region. Because this isn't a region of instability. This isn't a region of wars. This isn't a region that that would see those types of conflicts. True. So what's, what's, what's really important, what's happening now is that all of the leaders are stepping up and stepping in to sort of ensure that nothing happens to threaten that, even as they still support Guyana in the border controversy as CARICOM. You know, we were hearing all kind of talks that the U.S. would have sent military forces in. Um, they have an interest in the Essequibo region with the oil. How factual is these things? So there's been a lot of concerns, especially coming out, especially what I've reported on coming out of Venezuela. Venezuela has said that it fears that the U.S., the U.K. might be coming in and they might be beefing up Ghana's security to launch an attack and to protect resources and all of that. I think what is factual and what is known and what I have reported on very diligently is that Guyana has said that it isn't pursuing any aggressive actions. Everything it does is defensive. So it's going to do everything it can to protect its border, to protect its territory in the event something happens, but it isn't taking any aggressive actions. There's been a huge focus on beefing up defense capabilities and not on beefing up Attacking to be, capabilities, to, to, to be so on to the speak. to be the on, yeah. on the aggressive side yeah. of defense, and and that's also that was also a commitment that came out of the meeting between the two presidents that 
everything that's happening would be purely defensive, all aggressions off the table, completely off the table. You know, we had to, I had to explain to persons in Trinidad and Tobago on my show, we had, we had numerous discussions on it. And one of the things that was very worrying to me is that I am happy that it has been clarified, not just by us home here, by um, our CARICOM journalist, your good self, that our prime minister in this republic and other prime ministers throughout the region has taken a position on CARICOM. We stand as a, as a nation, we stand as a community, all right, as a community together. And I like that. The thing about it is this. What my concerns are was if there was to be an attack on the Guyanese people, what I feared is the fact that, of course, the U.S. would have run to assist with other, along with other CARICOM nations. The thing about it is, is that Maduro, President Maduro, and the, the President of the United States, they are not allies. There's, there's, there's been riff with them. So what it meant is that should anything like that happen, other nations would have been affected with food imports, among other things, and we could have become what is known as casualties of war. So I want to turn my attention now, where we see Venezuela holding military drills. Could it be perceived from your standpoint that they are preparing themselves for a different outcome, one that does not in incur peace? What are your thoughts? You know, if you had asked me this question maybe in November last year, I might have given you a different answer. And that's purely because I myself traveled to the border communities uh, to hear some of what those residents have been feeling. And residents, just as you alluded to, were concerned that because of heightened military presence along the Venezuelan border, the border shared with Guyana, you know, Venezuela might be preparing to invade. When Venezuela pursued its referendum, mm -hmm. Guyana even told the ICJ that it fears that Venezuela may use this referendum as sort of a, a way of annexing the territory that it claims. So mm -hmm. these are real fears. These are real concerns that people had. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that anyone would bury their heads in the sand and say, no, that's not true. However, since November to now, because of that meeting in December, because of what happened and because of the commitments coming out from no less than two presidents of, of the two, two countries, Ghana and Venezuela, and the very important commitment to refrain from any action that would interfere with the peace and stability of this region, Right now, I think many of those concerns have been addressed and many people no longer have to fear that, you know, something might happen. Of course, things are always unpredictable. Anything can happen. But I believe because of that high-level meeting, a lot of concerns, a lot of fears have been addressed. And the commitment and a declaration like the Argyle Declaration that was made in St. Vincent and the Grenadines is as is as heavy as it comes, I believe. So do they have what a declaration like that? stronger than a declaration from two presidents? Yes, that was the coming out of the meeting was That's the Argyle right. Declaration from both presidents. Great. That 
it was an 11 point declaration but but i guess what a lot of people most welcome is the commitment to refrain from any activity any action that would interfere with the peace and stability in our entire region there's a saying that with every rumor there is a measure of truth all right they, they say that i don't know how true right? there's a measure of, of of truth to every rumor why and i'm asking you this straightforward because i've been hearing the talks i've done some research myself to figure out why and how why would um president maduro mm -hmm. say that the Essequibo region and Lake Claim State. Does he have any sort of cognitive rights? Or were there ever a time where that particular region was under the control of the Venezuelan people and it was left dormant for many years and now they're trying to, to, to reclaim it? It's like in Trinidad, right? We have state lands in Trinidad. But if you go and live on the land, you pull up a little chambers there, and next thing you know, after five years, you, you, you went from, from board to concrete, and then you get Wasa come and give you some water, and Tientek pass and give you some lights, and you're on the, on the property for more than 10 years. You get a deed of comfort from the government, and they can't move you again, and it's a process, right? Because you've been there for so long, but it really and truly, you, you went squatting. You take the government land. Is it a situation similar where that region territory was owned or governed or run or ruled by? the Venezuelan people and now they are saying okay for many years it was dormant now we want it back I have heard the talks I've done some research but I want to hear it from you I'm very grateful that you asked that question because it gives me a chance to talk about Ghana's indigenous people mm -hmm. uh, the people who first came here they, they were the first ones to inhabit Guyana um, those lands when last year when Venezuela was pursuing that referendum. One of the important stories that I covered was Guyana's indigenous peoples, be it people individually or indigenous groups, coming out to really make it clear that these lands have always been Guyana's indigenous people's lands. Right. So first and foremost, this is Guyana indigenous land, number one. But number two is the border was established, the border as we know it, was established since 1899 via an arbitral award that Venezuela via representation participated in. And Venezuela accepted that border as we know it today for decades, for about six decades, if my maths is correct. It was only until the 1960s, as Ghana was approaching independence, that Venezuela rejected that, so to speak, to put it in strong language. Venezuela rejected the boundary that was established and Venezuela said it started making claims that the arbitral award was not fair and it was not properly done. And that is what led to the decades of bilateral talks and, and engagements that went all the way to the United Nations until in about 2017, 2018, the Secretary General then, Ban Ki-moon, decided that, you know, these talks have been going on for long enough. There hasn't been much progress. It should go to the ICJ, and that's where Ghana took its case. So it's very important, and, and I'm really happy that you mentioned this, because I think when we talk about this controversy, we don't often give the respect, so to speak, to, to indigenous peoples. Indigenous people have a connection to the land. So it's really important to note that Ghana's indigenous peoples have lived on this land for as long as we know it, mm -hmm. before there was any European settlement and and colonization of, 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 of any kind 
indigenous peoples were there first. I'm happy that then, you... uh -huh. then when the European persons came, when they they came and they established colonies and so forth in 1899 years before Ghana was independent, Ghana was then British Guyana, there was an arbitral award that determined the land boundary between Venezuela and then British Guyana. Interesting. So the fact that, as we mentioned, that Venezuela at one point chose to renege or not acknowledge that, that um, statement that was made many years before, that is where the claim to the Essequibo region is coming from because they don't they no longer um acknowledge it that that's the borders they're not they're not acknowledging the indigenous people now here's my final question before we wrap this afternoon all right i know we can talk about this again in the near future and we have somewhere we can cover now the british warship that is expected to be there you said there's an eight uh, 11 point declaration between the both parties to keep the peace in this region um is the ship still coming <laughs> and if so well the ship is here oh it's the there ship, already the ship has been here okay it's there yes all right um was it there prior to the two leaders meeting in saint vincent or did it come after it came after christmas it arrived after that meeting all right. Um, yeah. One, you know, I just want to make sure that you know they don't see it as that 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 arrival of that ship being there uh, in the coastal waters of Guyana does not pose a threat to destabilize what the boat leaders have agreed to, where one leader becomes yeah. presumptuous and think, "Hey, what is going on here? Like, are they really planning for me?" That kind of thing. You know, I'm just hoping that that's not the case. Yeah. So two things I can mention about this, and I'm again grateful for the question because it, it helps me talk about what things I've been reporting on. So in the first instance, I mentioned earlier on that Ghana says it has been focused on purely defensive measures. It's an oil economy now. Threats are becoming a little bit more sophisticated. It can't just be lax about these threats. It has to take threats seriously. So for the past maybe... I've been a journalist for about eight years now, and I would say for maybe the past four to five years, mm -hmm. which is roughly around the time when our oil sector started developing, we've definitely seen an increase in overseas collaboration, so to speak, to build up defensive capacity. So U.S. Southcom with the U.K., with RSS, those kinds of things. All right. So that's one. And, and because of the concerns Venezuela raised about that, that ship being we have here, just about 30 seconds the to go. president of this country, yeah, the president of this country has just made it clear that these are continuing defensive engagements. But also, Prime Minister Ralph Gonzalez from St. Vincent, he has also come out and spoken out, not expressing an opinion, but just on behalf of Ghana, offering an explanation that this vessel has also been to other CARICOM countries well for defensive measures. I think the bottom line is it's just defense. Just defense. And I'm happy that you was able to clarify that. Thank you very much, Miss Aragubera, for being a part of Freedom 106.5 this afternoon. Great information, and it was beautiful and brilliant chatting with you. I hope that this is not the first and last, but it will continue in the not-too-distant future. Thank you again. Thank you. And all the best for the new year.